Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studios here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined as usual by the notorious Yumi, also known as Jeremy Goldcorn. How are you, man? I'm doing very well indeed, Kaiser. How are Glory you? Glorious, gorgeous fall weather here in our beloved capital. Indeed. Uh, Jeremy, you and me, we spend way too much time on the internet, right? Yes. Uh, so I don't know about you, but I, I feel a lot less guilty about it because a significant chunk of that way too much time. I actually spend reading things and often things that are valuable. So I'm very grateful of the trend of late uh, for good long-form reads that are now available. It used to be just you know the New Yorker and the Atlantic and then the New York Review of Books and occasionally Vanity Fair and things like that. But uh, nowadays there's all sorts of online publications like Aon and uh, Grantland and Descent and Good digest like the browser and long reads where you know uh, also all the I have to shout out Instapaper which is one of my favorite apps for my iPad where you know the editors actually do a pretty good job of recommending some 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 some, some good stories that I might otherwise overlooked anyway ten thousand words is often still not quite enough a topic sometimes doesn't merit a whole book length treatment either so. Uh, as much as it's unfashionable to say, I have to tip my hat to Amazon. Uh, I have to say I really quite like the Amazon Singles thing that they've got going. Jeremy, you a fan of the Singles? Yeah, I, li- I like them. I think it's it's great to be able to read. Uh, so, so as it happens, we have actually in our studio today somebody I have long wanted to get into onto Seneca. That's Mara Fistendahl, who is Shanghai-based uh, writer and author most recently of what, by my reckoning at least, is... Uh, the best, uh, or certainly best-selling, China-related offering in the single format thus far, and The City Swallowed Them. And she's also author of Unnatural Selection, Choosing Boys Over Girls and the Consequences of a World Full of Men. She writes for a number of publications, including the journal Science, where she has her accreditation from, and Scientific American. Mara, welcome to Seneca. Thanks for having me. So you've written about murderous mingong and miserable models and gender imbalance and all sorts of other topics, and... Your rather memorable byline, although it's difficult to, to pronounce, it, it popped up from the first time I read a piece several years back about hackers in China. You remember that piece? I do. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. Give, so. give us a quick overview of, of, of the numerous publications that you write for and maybe the thread that ties it all together if there is such a thread. Yeah, um, I'm not sure there is a thread. <laughs> I just <laughs> write about what I'm interested in. Um, I, I tend to do a lot of science reporting. I'm I'm here with science magazine so i cover a lot of different stuff for them um i do because they're the stories we do from china tend to be about kind of softer topics i've done stories about the one child policy um about big surveys like efforts to count how many people are here uh and then i've written for for the atlantic um the ft magazine for harper's uh, and recently I've been experimenting with this new genre of long form and, and publishing digitally. Great. Yeah, I'm especially interested in in this whole sort of scientific uh, writing that you've done so much of. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but that is a beat that is just not covered very well uh, by the journalists here. I mean, yourself accepted, of course. Uh, not a lot of journalists out of China doing science reporting, even though I think, you know, China is... On the march, it's continuing, however problematically at times, to increase its output of, of interesting mm. science. We, we also have uh, Christina Larson in Beijing. Of course, so. who writes for MIT Technology Review. And, uh, and, for, and, science. and for science. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. I've read some for great pieces. And Christina, of course, has been a guest on our show. Uh, but yeah, that, that's, it seems like between the two of you, 
I mean, that's, that's, that's about it, right? There's not a lot of science writing. What, what do you suppose is, is the reason for that? Hey, there are also a few good Chinese reporters uh, who write for science and for nature. Uh-huh. And Jane Cho is one of them. Uh, nature now has a correspondent, we think, because they're, you know, we're their main competitor and they want to be Nature's as awesome as we are. Yeah, they have a correspondent in Shanghai oh, now. That's great. Yeah. What's that person's name? Uh, David Cernoski. Oh, I'll have to. I'll have but to it's, it's a huge topic because there's so much money going into it. Um, you know, China's now overtaken Japan and total spending on R and D and all that. And, and there's a lot of hype about what's happening here too. Um, and there's just huge interest in the science world. And, and, you know, I often see this phrase like China's going to eat our lunch in, in, you know, insert area of research here. Um, uh, and, and a lot of it's not true from my perspective, but, I mean, but the, it makes it interesting. Some of the articles you, you, you've, you've written uh, would suggest to me that, uh, you may have even a slightly stronger position on that, that perhaps you think that idea is complete bullshit that China will overtake. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's hard to say. I mean, there is a, there, there is a lot of, Academic fraud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there, there's a, there, there are some interesting projects, and um, there are very you know, hardworking uh, Chinese scientists who've been here their whole lives, and also people who've come back from overseas uh, to start things up. Um, but in, in an area where there's so much money going into it, there is a lot of room for fraud. Um, and there are a lot of overseas... Chinese who have posts here who are kind of double dipping. So they have positions in the U.S. and they also have pos- positions concurrently in China. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the big question for China is whether whether you can have scientific inquiry when you don't have a, a, a free government. Um, so far, they've shown that a lot is possible, but there are a lot of there are also a lot of questions about you know what 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 the next ten or twenty years will hold. Right. I mean, I I, I wonder whether we maybe tend to overstate the idea that uh, scientific inquiry is entirely dependent on, on uh, free inquiry. Well, that's that's yeah. one of your recurring yeah. themes, Kaiser. I mean, the, the example you usually give is uh, tell da Vinci me, or da, da Vinci was Da Vinci living in freedom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. It's a good point. But at least I would say maybe at the level of having oversight and, mm. you know, having mechanisms in place to kind of monitor what's happening and having some transparency, that is that is something that would that that, that would be more critical. Jeremy, let's make Not, sure to, to put up a good list of links to, to science-related pieces that Mara's written over the years. Um, but now let's turn to murder. Murder. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so your Amazon single and the city swallowed them. Um, so this is actually the first work from a writing collective that you belong to called DECA, right? Uh, is that, That's right. Is that how you pronounce it, DECA? That's right, is yeah. That, is that an yeah, acronym? Ten. Is that a... No, the original idea is that... There were ten There were ten of us. Ah, I see. Uh, and then there were nine, and we still... Like we decided, we like the name, but, and you know. And, and what, so. what, what's the what's the mission of the collective? What are you doing? So we're a group of writers, and we banded together to publish our works and market them collectively. Um, and we were we were we were inspired by Magnum, and and more recently by these other photo agencies that launched around the two thousands. Um, that were you know basically photographers taking control of their work and saying. Uh, 
we we own this, you know, we, the new we'll technologies. We'll sell it, we'll publish it. Yeah, Mag- Magnum was a reaction to new uh, lighter cameras that allowed photographers to you know, go out in the field. Uh, the, the barriers to entry were lower, and they didn't need people controlling their work as much. And, and so you feel you can apply the same approach to, to Ceres journalism? Right, so now electronic publishing offers a lot of opportunity. I mean, the 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 issue with it is that it's it's open to everyone. So you know, the every little guy on the street can claim that he's a writer, um, and so then the the challenge is to still have quality control and and also to be able to market your works, uh, and that's something that we can do together as a group that. You know, if I go myself and say I'm going to publish my works online, um, it, it's hard to get people to pay attention. And how many titles have you, you your collective published so far? Uh, so far, just two. So yeah. we launched with my title in June, then we came out with the second one this summer, and now we have uh, how many three or four in, in, in the works. Let's, yeah. let's get a plug in for that second work. What is that? Uh, the second one is by a by a guy called Stefan Ferris in Rome, and he it's more of an essay, and he's kind of um, arguing that the whole concept of international borders is bunk. Uh, it, he compares it to apartheid in in South Africa. Uh, he it's called Homelands, um, and I, it's, it's a really pr- provocative read. And and he's a guy who he actually lived in Beijing pretty briefly, but oh. he's lived all over the world. And, you know, has a sort of complicated um, situation himself in, in terms of documents. Uh, yeah. you know, like, any, it inspired anyone, him to hate the, the idea of the nation state. Right? Yeah, anybody who's lived overseas for, for any Or, or anyone who has, has a passport where you need a visa to go everywhere, such as yours truly, you start to hate the idea of borders and nation states. We, we, um, today, right, is, yeah. uh, as we record this, it's we're, we're waiting for returns on the uh, the... the, the uh, the vote in Scotland over, over independence, and Jeremy was just ranting uh, earlier. Jeremy's clearly in the no camp. Well, I, you know, it's the Scots should do whatever they want, but I mean, for me, as a rootless cosmopolitan, the idea of like needing your own little tribal identity with your own little borders, I just, I mean, I, nationalism just, I, there's not a drop of blood in me that understands the appeal because. Uh, Sounds like you should read Stefan's book. Yeah, yeah. perhaps. But okay, let's <laughs> really get to murder now. Yeah, so before let- we do, I want to issue a spoiler <laughs> alert. I mean, because the events are not in this book laid out like a whodunit. Uh, there's not like a range of possible suspects or a mystery about the motives or anything like that. So maybe oh, this isn't, isn't necessary. Okay. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to be asking Mara to, to talk about the last couple of chapters and the fate of the man who was convicted of the crime. Um, so if you do plan to read it, maybe you should pause now. It only takes, you know, 40, 40 45 minutes to read. So uh, then resume once you've, you, you've read this excellent work. You were living in Shanghai in 2008 when the news broke of the, the murder of the young Canadian model, Diana O'Brien, right? Mm-hmm. Did you immediately recognize this as something that you wanted to write about in depth? It didn't occur to me that I could write about it at the time i guess i wasn't really in a position where a magazine was gonna go was gonna say like oh go write a, a long feature on this murder uh-huh. um and you know i, I didn't want to be part of the pack of the reporters that was covering it right after it happened either uh so it, you know it you took me out? at this point i realized I, oh i started i started working on it last year oh, okay 
and when DECA, when I started talking to people in DECA about, about getting that going and then and realized it would be a, a good, it was this idea that was sort of sitting in the back of my mind that would be a good piece for them. What, what was it about this particular case that you thought would be appropriate for this format and, in, you know, that would really spark your interest? So I was actually living pretty close to where she was killed. Oh. And it was just the thought, you know, first of all, a lot of people in Shanghai were thrown by the murder when it happened because it was pretty close to the center of Shanghai. Mm -hmm. And, you know... And foreigners living in Chinese cities, we tend to feel very safe. You assume that it's quite safe, yeah. Yeah. And I was living in a a pretty crappy, you know, six-floor... Walk-up. Yeah. And even as a woman, you don't really feel worried at night going home alone. No, I'd never... It never occurred to me. Like, you know, one of those places with the clap-on lights and the... In the entryways, and I, you know, I'd been before I moved to Shanghai. I was living in East Harlem, and and I walked home from the subway with my um, keys in my hands, you know, in case someone attacked me or like I I, I worked late at night, and uh, um, and in China it never really occurred to me. So then it, it, there was just something that that seemed um, odd about it. Uh, from the beginning, but then also it was right before the Olympics, mm-hmm. and. Uh, the the killer was found really quickly, like within a week. Um, the meanwhile, the modeling agency that that Diana worked for shut down right away and this split town. So or whatever her name was. Yeah, the the the, the woman who ran it. Her name was um, her English name was Helen. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and so she immediately looks, looks suspicious in the press, mm-hmm. um, but that was never really followed up on. And then, then this migrant worker was arrested uh, within the week. And you know, there was a lot of speculation that the Olympics was coming, and this needed to be cleaned up very quickly. So you needed a patsy, somebody to, to quickly. Find That's out. right. Yeah. Did you did you have much experience by way of writing about true crime, or were you interested in that genre of writing in particular? Or? No. Uh, I, I I love watching TV series, true <laughs> crime TV series. Uh, you know, at at some point I interviewed a um, he he's kind of a contract investigator who police departments bring in to consult on cases, and he um, he's consulted at departments all around China. He's in a he's um I think he's an Australian guy originally, and he's consulted at departments around China and. Um, and around the world, and, and he kept saying to me, you've watched too many TV series. <laughs> you know, I'd ask him a question, he'd be like, you you watch too many TV series. Um, but I... Uh, I He kept asking about, you know, DNA evidence. And <laughs> yeah, it was just, I think his point was... Why didn't you bring the crime scene <laughs> investigators? <laughs> My presumption that, that anything kind of worked according to procedure in the West was was not right he said so yeah. he was he was making the point that that both um chinese and say american police departments have a lot of they screw a lot of stuff up. up right yeah. yeah yeah and they get do you feel compelled you know, to read truman capote's in in cold blood or anything like i that did that start reading it but then i also started reading about the controversy around whether he could have gotten all that information right. and i think i think supposedly he didn't take notes yeah. and you know had a um photographic memory and and uh and so then i got kind of caught up in in that and, and just had trouble reading it but um um norman mailer's the executioner's song yeah, that's yeah, an amazing oh, yeah, book gary gilmore that's yeah a, so uh, th- yeah. this book is is about 
um, correct me if I'm, I'm wrong or if my interpretation is too liberal here, the collision of two groups of, of outsiders, the Shanghai, both marginalized, both being exploited, though, in, in very different ways. Is, is that fair? Yes, right. So there's first there's this migrant killer, mm-hmm. the, the accused killer, convicted killer later, um, who comes from rural Anhui, and, you know, it's a pretty kind of forgotten corner of Anhui. I went there uh, in the process of my reporting to, mm-hmm. to talk to his family. And then Diana, who comes from Salt Spring Island in British Columbia, which is, um, in a way, it's kind of an idyllic uh, hippie island. Like People there don't want me to use the word hippie, but it's, but it, it, you know. Oh, it's it's just, pretty hippie. I mean, yeah. there's these, you know, floating around in dreadlocks and all this stuff. Yeah, and there. people have farm stands, and there's lots of, like, locally made products. and The free store. Yeah, I mean, she she yeah originally she lived on a really small island where there were no stores and people, so locals kind of pooled together their belongings and you know sold them at the free store, um, gave them away and it it was just, I went there as well and it's it is extremely beautiful place but it was also this um, very small community that has nothing to do with um, Shanghai in two thousand eight. And she somehow ends up as a model uh, in Shanghai and had only been in Shanghai for about, what, 12 days before she was, she was murdered. But she had experience That's, before that traveling in other, like in Milan and, and, and other places. Yeah, she'd gone to Milan on a short stint. She didn't have a lot of experience as a model. And she was really, you know, the, the modeling industry is at this place where there is this glut of models. And they can kind of, they, they basically... When you, sorry, when you say the modeling industry, you mean in China? No, worldwide. Globally. Right. Mm-hmm. right. So mm-hmm. it's at... And it's very globalized, right? Completely. So 10 or so years ago, um, the places like China started opening up and wanting foreign models. Uh, and then at the same time, um, Brazilian and Eastern European and Russian models became available. And so now you have this kind of race to the bottom where... Um, a, a girl, because they're, they're often girls, who get plucked off the streets in Canada or in Poland or wherever and um, would end up pretty quickly on a plane to somewhere else. Um, but there's no oversight of what's, you know, what where she's going to end up often. Like, she she might have a an agency in her home country that's supposedly kind of checking up on on where she's going and um, the terms under which she's going to be working. But a lot of times it doesn't happen. And then in China also, the industry is completely under the table. Right. Um, So no one's working legally or very rarely working on anything that approaches legal conditions. They're on tourist visas and Usually just tourist visas, yeah. Yeah, you um, go into that whole process. In fact, you, you delve into quite some detail about the whole seedy world of, of modeling, the indignities and the uh, exploitation, the shitty living conditions. That, but um, there's nothing really too lurid, right? I mean, obviously there's a murder, and that's pretty goddamn lurid. But Diana O'Brien wasn't working as like a pijo xiaojie. She wasn't like, you know, she wasn't being trafficked. She wasn't forced into prostitution. I, I can't imagine. Um, oh, I, I, I can... I can very easily imagine somebody picking up that book with the expectation that there would mm-hmm. have been, uh, you know, so, so some of that in there that they'd be re- 
reading at least a serious indictment. But basically, she was so, uh, like an English teacher, essentially, like a, an English yeah. teacher at a dodgy school. Yeah, uh, yeah. That, that yeah, was the level of exploitation. The comparison. Right. Exactly what yeah, I was going to yeah. say is that yeah. uh, there are a lot yeah. of foreigners who come here. A token white face in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right. In, right. In that marginal group. I mean, we're the. Well, the press coverage initially did make it sound like, um, you know, there were. There had been some jobs that she was unhappy doing. So she was placed with this completely shady Chinese agency that was really just, like, run out of some um, crappy apartment um, not pretty far outside the center of Shanghai. Mm-hmm. You know, I went there, and it's, like, the kind of place where everybody's hanging their laundry everywhere, and, you know, there's zero security, dark hallways. I mean, it was, like, it was not an office <laughs> by any means. And... Um, and they put her on jobs in, um, you know, kind of, a, she was working as a whiskey girl in second, third tier cities throughout China. And, you know, so that's not desirable work at all, but she wasn't, I think when people think of modeling, they, they have these stereotypes of sex and drugs and, and, you know, for a lot of young women, it's really more of a, you know, kind of a career they're going to do for two or three years. So she she basically, she got there, got set up, went out on a couple of jobs right away and spent the rest of her time basically bitching about how bad things were on Facebook, right? Right. She She wasn't happy to be in Not a lot of time. I mean, 12 days is just not a whole lot of time. Um, The book is also about Chinese law enforcement and about Mm -hmm. the Chinese judiciary system. Um, And I guess I half expected as I read it that the man they had arrested, Sketch and June, would have turned out to be an innocent. Would, would, he was pressured or even coerced or tortured into confession for the murder of, 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 of Ms. O'Brien. But there's no real indictment here either. Um, yeah. Have you encountered disappointment in readers over, over the fact that maybe nothing was as lurid or as, as finger-pointing as, as... Well, I tried to leave it ambiguous because that's how it is in my mind. Like, right. I, I honestly am not sure if... Um, if justice was done or if he was completely set up as I can after doing a lot of reporting and talking to both family families of the victim and families of the accused I can I can see both explanations Uh, and that's the challenge of doing crime reporting in China because in the U.S. for example I would have complete trial documents I'd be able to sit in on the trial I'd be able to kind of decide for myself like what do I think and here, there, yeah, I had some trial documents, but at the end of the day, I s- had to also kind of deal with the fact that I wouldn't know for certain um, mm. what had happened. So, so, and and you know, that's even the the, the there are criminologists who who study China who have a very deep knowledge of the system. Some of them are former investigators. But, you know, even they don't know what's happening from one area to the next, necessarily. Easy to understand. Um, So if you had to tell somebody, here's the big takeaway about China, about Shanghai, about the city's breakneck modernization, about uh, what would you say is uh, that that big takeaway from from having read that book? What do you learn about the city? I mean, the city, after all, is kind of the subject in the little sentence that forms the title of the book. It's... It's a character in the story, right? So what's Shanghai's role in in this? Well, in the end, I mean, to to get around the question of who really definitively did it, I looked at 
the similarities between Chen Zun and, and Diana and how their lives were brought together, regardless of whether he actually committed this crime. Uh, in this way, the, the common threads were, were pretty striking in that they both were living in kind of crowded apartments. They hadn't been in Shanghai for very long. Um, they're both working illegally uh, and, you know, very much beneath the surface of Shanghai. And and then their lives were brought together on this day mm-hmm. um, and this fateful moment. And and the city really kind of failed both of them. I mean, obviously, if he if he um, stabbed her 22 times as the court documents suggest he did, he did, then, you know, he has a little bit more involvement in that, in that situation. Um, but even Diana's mother at the end didn't feel like he, you know, needed to be deeply, you know, need to be really seriously punished for what she did. Like she felt like he was a bit of a victim as well. Um, and, and, I came to see him that way, too. Yeah, we can talk about uh, Deborah, the mother, um, in a little bit. I thought that was one of the most interesting parts of it. But I want to get back to, you know, you say that the city failed them both in, in some sense. I, I I can see why one could make a pretty easy case that Chen Jun and, and all migrant workers are in some sense failed by the cities of China. I mean, they come here without uh, proper hukos, without the ability to, to educate children here. They come here and are treated very much as second-class citizens. Uh, they're invisible to to the you know to the to, to the um, you know the more urbane, you know, properly hukoed city dwellers. Just they are here in Beijing. It's 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 a real problem. Um, how did the city fail? Uh, somebody who came here on a tourist visa, sort of knowingly uh, working illegally and not you know paying taxes. I mean, is the city responsible? No, to, to I mean, like I mean uh, the city's part of this story, right? Okay. So she, you know, she came here at the Canadian passport and a lot more privilege than Chen Jun did. Mm-hmm. But uh, at the same time, th- she came into a situation where she's told it would be one thing, right? You come, these agencies kind of prey on um, models' dreams of becoming a runway model and mm-hmm. and odds are if you're coming to China to do catalog work um, which is what Diana thought she was going to do and it, or, or whiskey girl work which <laughs> is even in another category um, they, you're, you're not going to be in fashion week in New York or right. Paris right is um, the the oh. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mean but it's if, hard to <laughs> you if you model for what is it called northeastern tiger it's not a direct route <laughs> <No>. to Paris <laughs> no it's not I mean I mean I mean some some women work in China again and again you know they've come here like ten or twenty times and they know the ropes and they end up making a lot of money here they know which agencies are good and which are bad hmm. but if you're kind of dropped in here from a you know, really small place in in Canada where there's just like one ferry to mm. the outside world every two hours. Um, it's it's hard to know what you're getting into. There's this great documentary called Girl Model um, that looks at a Siberian model who works in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you just get the sense that there... Uh, there's no preparation or no, you know, they're not really told what to expect. Um, like Diana got sent this cultural guide on um, China that they gave advice, like, d- don't use the word comrade. 
when talking to people, but it was right. just completely. Guanxi uh, are very important. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Handle your with don't, two hands. Don't give people. Don't clocks. put your chopsticks right. in the rice. <laughs> yeah. But there, there's no. I mean, and how could you prepare someone for what a club in a third tier city is like? Right. And, right. and and when you're the you know, foreign whiskey girl, and you're wearing this like bad fitting vinyl, clothing, yeah, vinyl miniskirt. Oh gosh. I, I yeah. thought actually what I found most interesting was what this, the book, um, the single, revealed about the workings of the Chinese legal system, and, and especially in, in potentially capital cases like this one. Um, Deborah and Keith, and his mother and I guess her quasi-stepfather, uh, they came to Shanghai immediately after the, the murder, and they were present for the trial. And all that. I thought what was really interesting was how they were so involved in the actual uh, sentencing Mm -hmm. uh, I was talking with Eric Fish, a friend of mine, um, who's also read and so he swallowed them. And we were talking about how this issue about how sentencing is so largely determined by the victim's family. Um, he told me about this documentary called Interviews Before Execution, which I hadn't gotten a chance to read or to, to watch yet. Um, he says that, you know, in, in, in this is dealt with quite a bit and that how much of the time the sentencing comes basically down to how much the murderer's family pays the victim's family. Uh, right. And, uh, right. Right. Uh, was yeah, restitution is a big one as right, well. Right, right, right. Uh, was it? I mean, that that's a very different approach to 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 punishment. I mean, I, I've I think that you know there's retributive justice systems and then there there are sort of rehabilitative justice mm -hmm. systems, but something like this, which where it's sort of restitutional, that's that's interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about how that whole thing shook out? Well, in this case, uh, Deborah and and Keith didn't want money at all, so right. that was not. I don't. Maybe maybe was a question at some point, or maybe the the poverty, extreme poverty of the family in Anhui ruled it out. Um, but even when I went to find, track that down the family in Anhui, their neighbors protected them, and it took me hours to actually find them. Even though it was like it was a really small village, mm -hmm. um, and the, I think the reason why was that people thought that I was going to get money for uh, the uh, Canadian family. Um, I mean, someone said something that suggested that to me at some point. Uh, um, you know, everybody knew there. Everybody had heard about what course, happened. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. You could argue that the justice system, in a way, is more, you know, considers the needs of victims and victims' families more here. I mean, that's ignoring all the other very obvious issues with it. It's an interesting thing. In the, in the end, Deborah and Keith felt that they didn't want to see uh, Chen Jun ex executed. And, and they, they didn't even, you know, they were sort of ambivalent about whether he should be in prison for the rest of his life, too. Um, they were extremely lenient. And, and so in, he got um, death with reprieve. Which means... Which means not death. It means um, technically you're, you're, you could get death, but after two years they review your conduct, and if you're you know, kind of done okay... As, as, yeah, as, as, as few as seven or eight years. You get a life sentence, but, but you, in essence you get 25 years. Oh, uh, 25 years. Right. Yeah. Um, so 25 years in a Chinese prison, I'd rather get death. <laughs> I don't know. I've never been in there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, from what I understand. Um, 
that's that's absolutely fascinating. Again, the, the book is called "And the City Swallowed Them." It's available as an Amazon single. Um, it's a very very quick read and uh, very educational. I think I, I was really really struck with some of the, the the descriptive passages, especially in the beginning of the book. Um, you just really capture that morning in in Shanghai. Uh, one image that stuck with me is just the, the flimsiness of the doujiang. Uh, I, I used to drink one of those every morning on my way to work. You know, they, they, they're basically these cylindrical plastic bags. <laughs> oh, yeah, they take plastic to new flim- levels of thinness in yeah, China. new levels of thinness. Oh, yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. Um, I want to go on and, and talk to you about your first book, which I have not actually had the chance to read yet, but I'm, I'm certainly going to. Unnatural Selection. Um, I think anyone coming to the title and knowing that your background is here in China would be excused from thinking that this book is mainly about China is that the case? Not not Buffy the Vampire Slayer. There's actually a Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode, episode I think, or called novel, called, uh, yeah. Called, is that yeah. one about China? No, that was not. I don't. Yeah. Know, I haven't seen it. it you know, I should, never come yeah. to China. Yeah. So it's about the sex ratio imbalance in China, um, and that's that's what how I started with the idea. But but I ended up expanding it to all the other countries that have this problem, and it's now a, it's now a very large number. Um, and w- which are the other countries India that have the problem most? Yeah, India uh, is what everyone thinks about, but also South Korea, Vietnam, Taiwan. South Korea, um, huh? South Korea is now balanced, but for years they they were having way more boys, um, mm-hmm. so they have to deal with the after effects. Uh, even Albania, Azerbaijan, Armenia, Georgia. You're going in alphabetical order now. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of A's, um, but it so it's got it's moved beyond Asia and beyond South Asia and. And no, for the so same basic reasons as sort yeah. of, you know, preference for male children, sex-selective abortions, they're able to do sonograms, determine the sex, and then selectively abort. Is that... That's right. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, if there's a history of, of abortion being pretty widespread or commonly used, that, that tends to also help, right? Because what happens is people, people use it to get rid of, uh, of you know, female fetuses. Um, so, of China had an extremely high abortion rate because of the one-child policy, right. um, and you know that's that's part of it. Um, I mean, so how does China now stack up against uh, other countries in, in terms of these these things, like sex-selective abortion, female infanticide, other means of, of skewing the gender rate ratio? Uh, China has the most serious problem uh-huh. in terms of you know. Well, obviously the largest population, but but the sex ratio of birth has been the highest here. Which is now what something like 116. I don't think it's down that low. So last census was 119 or wow. 20, um, and you really have to Christ. look at the census or the five-year. You know, in 2015 yeah. maybe would also right. give a good sense of what's going on. Um, but in the Caucasus countries, they're they're approaching the Chinese levels. Um, they're smaller, though, right? So, so it's going to have less of an impact on the world. So, what, in a nutshell, is the the, the really frightening potential of, of the consequences of this kind of gender imbalance? I mean, are we talking about like roving packs of bachelor bachelor groups that are? Are we talking about, you know, the reintroduction of polyandry? That would be not such a bad thing, would it? I mean, that's had that's. That's happened in in uh, China, in China, India. Yeah. yeah, I mean, in pretty isolated cases, mm-hmm. but in both places, there have been cases where um, women are being married to multiple men, and it, it's I guess it's not fun, 
um, because they're basically what happens is family will buy they they'll buy a daughter or sorry they'll buy a um a, a woman to be married to all three of their sons oh good god um so that actually happened in it still happens in tibet you know it's like culturally practiced there mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um but we're talking places where it was never never happened before and it's happening with a kind of brutality that's that, that you know isn't seen elsewhere i mean Genetically, we do end up coming out about 51% male. I mean, males are, are born more frequently. There's more boys born, yeah. Parabus, right? Yeah. Uh, and usually that was taken care of because of the, the, the human species propensity to... Because boys walk, like to kill walk, themselves. Kill <laughs> That's what, they're like sticks and stones and guns. So is, right, is, is right. That, I, I mean, it, evens, it evens out. Like pop biology, yeah. <laughs> pop evolutionary <laughs> theory. <laughs> Mine is not far off. You know, kept all war toys away from their boy. (laughs) They only let him. I mean, they eventually bought him. You know, uh, Legos, and the very first thing that he built was a gun. Right. (laughs) Bang! You're dead. (laughs) That's just so sad. Um, So, what are the what are the horrible consequences then? Of of this, I mean, not not well. It's all still playing out. The one that's quite clear already is that um women are being bought and sold right. as wives and being trafficked, trafficked into marriage yeah. um that's becoming quite widespread in china uh in east in, in wealthier parts of east asia it was it's a more it's more formalized in this kind of mail order bride way um but a lot of vietnamese women are ending ended ending up getting sold to men in taiwan and south korea mm-hmm. um and china Cambodia, now too it's yes a, now to, now to china yeah. true and meanwhile vietnam's kind of cracked down on the trade so cambodia is becoming ready to <laughs> the next step place. into its, <laughs> yeah. its usual role in world affairs as a provi- yeah. pro- provider I mean, just of flesh deeply, it's also I mean, there's a lot of trafficking happening within the india uh, poor women being sold to wealthier families. Um, so it tends to be wealthier areas um, where the sex-selective abortion happened initially. Um, you know, in China, it happened in more in eastern China. And so those are now the areas that import women from poorer places. I have um, had two, two children here in, in Beijing, and both times uh, the physician performing the sonogram resolutely refused to give us even the slightest clue mm-hmm. about what what the, the gender of our children would be not that we wanted to know but right oh my wife did want to know she she asked him flat out and yeah know, he stonewalled yeah i was there too they knew that we were i mean this, these are in you know sort of foreign hospitals uh is china making progress on that front or is it only in sort of you know well i cities? think it depends how much money you offer i'm mean, guessing <laughs> <laughs> I, I i don't know maybe that Maybe that's what that's my wrong. cynical answer. But there were there were, you know, there was one family that told me you could give um, a case of uh, Chunghua cigarettes or, and Chunghua cigarettes and yeah a, and to the doctor. Abort a female. <laughs> 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 Don't laugh, Jeremy. That's good. <laughs> yeah, no, I you know I laugh when the, we talk about really terrible things. That's my very Chinese reaction. <laughs> yes, that's true. It is very Chinese of you. I mean, and there are you know there. Like Doctor Hibbert from The Simpsons. <laughs> there are people who have set up these. <laughs> I'll just try to talk about more horrible things. So, um, keep Jeremy entertained. Please. But 
there there are these you know vans that drive around. You can do sonograms out of the back of the van. Um, so they, it is illegal here to to find out the sex, and I think they're trying um, to enforce it. But you know, it's there's a lot of stuff that isn't enforced, and that's. And, I mean, not, I wouldn't it, say it's, it's a huge. It's, it's, I mean, there is a sort of technological obstacle to enforcing it because I mean, if you look at an ultrasound and you know what you're looking at, mm-hmm. you can see yourself. Right. You know, it doesn't take that much training to like identify mm. the the legs and then once you've identified the legs I you can Yeah. Shit. Actually I, well, I when I was pregnant here, I we didn't want to find out and then and at some point I was like, Look, don't don't show it to me and then the the midwife was kinda like, Oh come on, how would you know? Yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> probably, probably the only patient who had the hobby of looking at like, sonogram <laughs> pictures. In my is is there any sense in which this may end up being in in any way empowering for women? I mean, I've heard that argument put put forward in some places. Like, if they're scarce, they'll be powerful. Yeah, scarce, yeah powerful. economists like that cards. argument a lot. In cities like Beijing and Shanghai, I think yes. I mean, it's it happens. For women who are kind of at the top of the, the pecking order, uh-huh. ba- basically, I think, yeah, they would ha- they have a better choice of potential mates, but, but then, on the other hand, there are women being trafficked and yeah. being being sold by their parents, and I think that's a much worse yeah, situation. You know, on balance, it's it's bad for clearly women. That's, that's and the case. and there are also some kind of. Um, you know, less tangible things that happen so that women become scarce. Um, there's more demand for domestic labor. Um, you know, are women then going to be pressured into doing jobs like house cleaning or teaching or I, I don't, I don't know. It's, mm-hmm. um, I, it's just hard for me to imagine that, that being a minority could be good for yeah. a group. You know, generally it, it, it doesn't work out that way. Yeah. I would have to agree with you. Well, uh, what about in female infanticide? Are we seeing any? Is there any bright spot in um, in, in that? They're both horrible. Sex selective abortion obviously is is horrible, but female infanticide's got to be you know worse at least um, from, from a moral perspective, an ethical perspective. Mm-hmm. We're seeing reduction yeah. in, in in that at least. I hope in China. Yeah. Yes, definitely. I mean, the, but there honestly there wasn't that much in the 1980s and the vast majority of what's happened have been sex selective abortions so when i started reporting on this um the the line in a lot of the foreign press i read was that um you know this horrible practice of drowning girl babies in buckets and um you know in in has happened in, in both China and India. And so that combined with abortion is leading to this big imbalance. And the, uh, the demographers I've talked with say it's, it's almost all abortion. Um, uh, you know, people in the people I went out and interviewed say, you know, they know this neighbor's had an abortion and this neighbor's had an abortion. And I had friends who said their mother had two or three. Um, and, and, so and I guess it makes sense because in this era, like the moral calculus for having an abortion is less than it, than mm. you know, than, than drowning your baby. Drowning. So why would somebody do that if they had the means to to get an abortion? It's I, I mean I, I I think it's 
I also think sex selective abortion is horrible, but yeah. it's. It was my um, poor planning, I think, in, in putting the show together that we had to end the formal part of the show on dead infanticide. Babies. <laughs> dead, dead babies. And I apologize for, for putting that image. <laughs> well, it made me laugh. Let's, let's try to move on to, 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 to recommendations and, and, and thank Mara for, for, for sharing um, about the book. I, 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 I do plan on reading it on natural. An unnatural selection. It's a great uh, title, I yeah, think. Yeah, it's yeah. really, it's true. Perfect for the subject. Uh, that I, I do very much look forward to reading that. And I look forward to you know having you back on the show. But for now, let's move on to recommendations. And as is our custom, we will start with Mr. Jin Yumi. Okay, well, I, just, I changed my mind actually tonight about what I want to recommend. And it's not China-related. I want to recommend something that I find a lot of fun. It's called Batterbox.com. B-A-T-T-A-B-O-X.com. And it's basically... Uh, a collection of interviews uh, regularly updated with people in Nigeria, uh, a lot of them in Lagos, about various things, you know, what they think of Ebola, uh, attitudes Mm. towards marriage, cheating spouses, this kind of thing. And Nigerians truly are amongst the most eloquent and fun to listen to people on the planet. It's just a culture. No, no, it's videos, YouTube videos, yeah. YouTube videos. And, you know, Nigerians Mm. also, I mean... um, it's one of the, having made uh, doing filming in China, interviewing people, and having done a little bit of it in in Africa generally, and um, having interviewed a lot of Nigerians in China, and knowing Nigerians quite well through that. It's just they they love uh, the camera. Um, they love to pose. They love to talk. They love to um, you know. Jeremy, say what they r- think. So idea. batter let's, box. Let's, let's do that. Yeah. We could. Uh, the only trouble is video is very labor intensive, Kaiser. Mm. And yeah, you uh, used to do those hard hat shows. Yeah, I, I, as I said, the video is very labor intensive. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to. Video. I would love to do uh, batter box. But batter box for China. Part of my point is wouldn't really work because you know you oh, have God. to have a special skill to do it. Yeah, I mean, I, I could. I think well, you could come up to any sort of you know um, one thirty a.m. Uh, guy sitting around shirtless on little plastic stools. You can, you can. Piles of snails and drinking. Sure, you can. I'm just telling you, it's it's a million times more difficult than it is in in Africa and probably particularly Nigeria. So mm-hmm. batterbox.com. We'll check it out. Mara, what do you have for us? So I'm going to recommend a piece by another member of DECA. Um, it's an older piece. Um, it, it's by Mackenzie Funk. It was an article for Harper's several years I love ago. That name. Mackenzie yeah, Funk. Great, his name is Mac Funk. Mac Funk. How wow. awesome is that? Either um, a pimp or a writer, I guess, with a name <laughs> like that. It's basically the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's um, editor is him. <laughs> writer is whore. <laughs> so he, I think it's called I Was a Chinese Internet Addict. He checked ah. himself into to one of those internet addiction rehab, internet the one, rehab the clinics. one, the guy who's very hungry for press, he went there. Um, Not with and the spent el- electric. I mean, the electric shock therapy one. His, they, they have that too. He didn't. He didn't get the therapy, oh, but he man. stayed for a week or two, and you know, was a patient. They let him go through all the you know activities that everyone else was doing. It's a great piece. Does um, Mac Funk speak Chinese? Or? No. So he he went with a translator. Ah, they let him take a translator. I mean. But there's this great passage about how the you know the test to get admitted is like, do you spend more than you know twenty hours a week on the internet? Easy. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm um, fucked. <laughs> but it's a really good piece, even though it's a, it, it, for me. I think of most parachuting reporting, I don't. I read 
isn't that about China isn't that great, but that that piece is is really good. Oh well, I'll check that one out. Um, I'm gonna um, recommend something musical. Um, we have a little habit with my. It's it's become a tradition. I think all all bands have to have inside jokes. That's what keeps bands together. And, and my band, Chunqiu, um for the last decade or more, every time we end rehearsal, one of us starts playing the opening chords to uh, a song by the band Chaozai Overload. Um, the song is called Jiu Pian Leng Jiao Hui, which is um, a a, a great song but uh, for some reason it's the song that we always play at the end of rehearsal now it's become this really elaborate production where we actually all join in we do the whole song now with all these you know like improvised so- solos and stuff but anyway I want to recommend Chao Zai which is Jeremy you remember Chao Zai right? yeah I remember so Chao Zai is led by Gao Qi in the 90s Gao Qi yeah, is, is one of I think the, the, the most amazing songwriters terrific guy uh, he, he's you know, mid forties now, and has had an acting career. He's working now on a documentary about the, the rock scene in the golden era, of the late eighties and the early nineties. Uh, the first album they put out was in the early nineties. Um, is self-titled. It's called Overload. Charles Ch- Ch- I. Uh, it, it features the guitar virtuoso Li Yang, uh, and uh, Gao Qi himself is just a fabulous, fabulous songwriter. The first album is very thrash metal. Uh, the second album they put out, put out, and I think it was like. In the very late 90s, it was 99 or in 2000, I think. Uh, it's called um, Mo Huan Lan Tian. Yeah. Oh, yeah. uh, that, that album was very clearly influenced. I mean, it, it, it went away from the really, really heavy stuff and started doing um, kind of more of the indie rock style. Very influenced by, uh, by albums like The Bends by uh, Radiohead. Uh, and just great power pop. I mean, just just some incredibly memorable songs. I'd highly recommend it. Wo Huan Lan Tian. So we're gonna play out with their song. Yeah, let's play out with one of their songs. Um, um, the title track, maybe even. Okay. Anyway, thanks, Mara, and we well, will. Thank uh, you. See you again next time you're in Beijing. Thanks, and, Mara. Uh, Jeremy, as always, and a very good got, evening what, to what you. Sir. What do we have next week, man? Um, well, I'm not sure. We have a few in the can. That's Things right, are the right. schedule is a bit uh, complicated at the moment. Okay. So I, I would n- neither confirm nor deny uh, anything about <laughs> next week. <laughs> All right, that's it. That's usually my line. But okay, <laughs> and we'll see you next week. Take care. Bye.